Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon is facing a potential recall. You know, there's people who walk in with bags, uh, uh, whether it's a CVS or Walgreens or Old Navy, and they walk out with merchandise. You have these people who know that they can get away with it. You have stores that have unfortunately have just put their hands down. Why? Because at the end of the day, nothing happens to these criminals. If they get caught, then they get a ticket and they're out walking the street because there's no bail. My guest today is Andrew Lara, city council member of Pico Rivera. Today he'll explain how Gascon's policies that were promoted as helping minorities is actually hurting his predominantly Latino community. One statistic that no one argues with is the majority of violent crime is minority on minority. So you're really not helping anyone by going soft on violent crime or going soft on gangs. In fact, it's, it's creating life in minority communities a bit unbearable. I'm Siamai Korami. Welcome to California Insider. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. We want to talk to you about Gascon and his policies. Can you tell us how these policies has impacted your community, your city? Yeah, well, it's, so George Gascon was elected in November of 2020, and at his swearing in, and he issued six directives. Um, and I believe that many of these directives are going to have, are, uh, are, are having a negative impact on my community. Um, one of them being failing to prosecute misdemeanor crimes. Uh, for example, prostitution, um, loitering, uh, things of that nature. Um, when we fail to prosecute these crimes, we give, in my opinion, a carte blanche for these crimes to take place. Um, not only that, but it, it gets at the heart of the matter in the sense that no one's receiving help, right? If we fail to prosecute a crime and this person has drug addiction issues, then they are not mandated by the court to seek out diversion, to seek out court-mandated drug addiction classes or programs. By failing to prosecute those crimes, no one is being helped. The community is not being helped, nor the offender. Because I believe that there's people out there um, who need help. Either they need mental health services or drug addiction or a combination of both. But when we fail to prosecute these misdemeanor crimes, that help is not being delivered to them. And in the long run, that just deteriorates the quality of life for my city. Can you tell us more about your community? You're in the city of Pico Rivera, right? Yeah, in the city of Pico Rivera, it's a approximately 65,000 residents, uh, predominantly Latino. Um, it's a community with uh, strong values in this country. It's a community built by veterans. Uh, the vast majority of homes that were built in the city of Pico Rivera, there was a large contingent of homes built um, for GIs. Uh, in the city of Pico Rivera at the Northrop Grumman plant, we built the first B-1 stealth bomber uh, there in the city. Uh, there was a Ford plant prior to that. Um, so it's a city that takes a lot of pride in this country and our veterans and our families. Um, that's the city that I come from. Uh, it's a city that expects certain things to be done in regards to crime, but it's a very compassionate city. 
and it's a city of second chances. We understand that people make mistakes. We understand that people go the wrong way and we want to give them a second chance, but we want to do it in a very responsible way, in a way that protects um, our way of life and our families. So when Gascon came to office, his policy was to help the communities, like the minority communities and communities like yours, right? Yeah, um, that's what he said. But when, you know, I grew up in the inner city. I grew up in Boyle Heights. Uh, some people would consider that East Los Angeles. But in the city of Boyle Heights, you have the birthplace of a lot of Mexican-American gangs, uh, old gangs such as White Fence, um, State Street, Hazard. These are multi-generational gangs. Uh, I grew up in a household where my father was a gang when he was growing up. He was from Ford Maravilla. Uh, by the time I was born, he had left that life. But growing up in the neighborhood, a lot of my friends joined gangs. Um, and these were smart kids. These were kids with bright futures. But in the inner city, we don't have role models such as doctors and lawyers to look up to. Uh, the role models in the inner city at that time, and I'm sure now too, are gang members because they're rolling around with the nice cars, with the money, with the girls, they command respect, right? And there's a certain uh, idea of t territorial. Um, you grow up on a block, well, this is a gang that you're in. Um, so I saw that growing up and when I heard of George Gascon's directive of not prosecuting special enhancements, especially gang affiliation. I thought, this is going the wrong way. You know, these gangs at the very core are criminal organizations. They're organized crime. Okay? Whether they're going to steal your car, whether they're going to terrorize you, whether they're going to terrorize your family, I've seen that growing up. I've seen families terrorized because maybe the daughter didn't want to date one of the gang members, or maybe because one of the sons looked at the gang, a gang member the wrong way or didn't give them due respect. You know, families have been driven out of neighborhoods because of these gangs. And I don't understand how or why we're going to give them any type of leeway. And in my opinion, they should be characterized as terrorist organizations because that's what they do to the inner city. And I don't care if the majority of them are Hispanic or Latino or African-American. At the root of it, they are creating just crime, violence, and undue heartache for the families, whether it be South Central, whether, whether it's Boyle Heights or East Los Angeles or, or in Pomona. Um, these are criminal elements that we cannot allow. So to, so, so to take a step back and say that, well, we're going to do away with the, with the gang enhancement. Um, no, that's the opposite direction. We want to steer away our youth, our children from gangs. And if it means putting gang members in jail until they rehabilitate themselves and leave that life, then so be it. So does it mean these policies might be more compassionate toward the gangs instead of being compassionate to the people in these communities? W without a doubt, without a doubt. You know, another aspect is that, you know, I've said this before, is I, I'm tired of politicians creating communities like mine as social petri dishes. Meaning, yeah, let's, you know, let's release people early or, or let's not prosecute these crimes or let's not step on gangs. Well, where do you think these people live? 
they live in predominantly minority communities. They don't live in Beverly Hills or Santa Clarita or, or Chino Hills. They live in communities that are predominantly minority. And when you look at the crime statistics, there's, there's you know, people like to debate statistics, right? My statistics professor used to say there's lies, damn lies, and then there's statistics, right? But one statistic that no one argues with is the majority of violent crime is minority on minority. So you're really not helping anyone by going soft on violent crime or going soft on gangs. In fact, it's, it's creating life in minority communities a bit unbearable. Now, you mentioned that you, growing up, you were around these gangs and your friends got recruited. How did you not get involved with them? A church. Church. My mom is highly religious. Uh, we were in a Christian church. And, you know, it was, let's, let's go to the church activity today. Let's, and, then, and then while at church, there's a message and there's a, there's a standard. There's a message and a standard. There's, there's, a, there's a godly way to live. Um, and it was always pulling me off the street to go to church. I didn't like it at the time, I'll be honest with you, right? I didn't like it at the time, um, but it saved me from a lot of trouble and heartache. Uh, because, you know, they're friends, right? Everyone's having a good time. Everyone's out late. Everyone's, you, you wanna be cool. Um, so it was, it was my mom. Who, who not only pulled me out of the street, but then also she did something very interesting. Um, in the early 80s, there was a busing program. So I grew up in Boa Heights, and she put me into the busing program. So midway through elementary school, um, I was pulled out of the, the local elementary school, and I would spend an hour, on, hour and a half on the bus. And I went to elementary school in Brentwood, and then I went to junior high school on, in in that area on, on the west side. So I started to interact with a lot of other different races, um, African-Americans. We'd, we'd go through South Central, pick up a bunch of African-American kids. We'd pick up a bunch of uh, kids from South and Central America, right? Not just necessarily me Mexican, uh, El Salvadoranian, people from Nicaragua. Um, and then we'd go and we'd mix with kids who were Jewish and white and they were e eating bagels and cream cheese, right? And, and my, in elementary school in, in Boyle Heights, my computer lab, I was in the fourth grade, it consisted of a record player and slides. And you'd put the headphones on and the record would play and they would say, well, okay, you turn the slide when you hear the beep. You know, beep and you turn the slide. That was computer lab. The very next year when I went to school in Brentwood, 32 Apple IIc computers. At that time, that was, that was cutting edge, right? They were doing introductory computer programming. And I'll never forget that story because it, 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 it etched into my mind that things are different. There's a different scale taking place here. And I don't want to achieve, I don't want to go backwards. We need to go forward. We need to move forward. We need, to, we need to invest in our families. We need to invest in our schools. We need to invest in our education, in our after-school activities, in our extracurricular activities, such as soccer, baseball, football, swimming, whatever that is. We need to create diversion for our children and for our families so that they don't go down the pathway of gangs.
when Mr. Gascon came up with his policies, he actually was using a lot of data and statistics and talk about like these policies, how they will have an impact. What are your thoughts on that? You know, he, he I, think, I think people are seeing, seeing him for what he is. He's a, s a snake oil salesman. Um, people talk, like to talk about science and data and whatnot, and he sort of talks about a, a physiology, about the formation of the frontal lobe and whatnot, and how it's not. All these different theories, right? But what's the end product? Everyone has a theory in science, right? You go through the scientific method, and you put forth a hypothesis, and you put forth your, your experiment, and then you go back and you look at the data. Now, I can only tell you what the data is today. In the city of Pico Rivera, our violent crime is up over last year for the first few months. Our property crime is up. Um, there's almost a sensationalism of crime. You know, there's people who walk in with bags, uh, uh, whether it's a CVS or Walgreens or Old Navy, and they walk out with merchandise. Right? And I call them Gascon shoppers uh, because you have these people who know that they can get away with it. You have stores that have unfortunately have just put their hands down. They're no longer hiring security. They're telling their employees don't get involved because they don't want their employees to get hurt. Why? Because at the end of the day, nothing happens to these criminals. Nothing happens. And if they get caught, then they get a ticket and they're out walking the street because there's no bail. That's another one of his directives. There's no bail. And it, you know, it's a shame when you go back and you look at his directives, they're just not well thought out in terms of what the end product would be. They were great publicity pieces. They were a great way to start off your, your tenure as making a splash, but they just weren't thought out on what the end product would be. You know, releasing people onto the street without bail, without a risk assessment tool, right? So someone who's caught shop, shoplifting, you know, what's their risk assessment that they're going to repeat or that they're going to commit a more violent crime? None of those tools are being in, enforced. It's just this carte blanche. Um, you know, we arrest you, it's a misdemeanor crime, and, and you're released onto the street. I think it's just very irresponsible. He has come under some pressure in the last few months, and there's a recall going on. The recall has momentum. Do you think he's actually looking at these and the results? Is he analyzing it, what's happening? Without a doubt. You know, I, I think Gascon's I think done a number of failures. He's failed to reach out to the communities at the very beginning. Um, and I'm not talking about special interest groups. He reached out to special interest groups like Black Lives Matter, so on and so forth. Um, and that, that's fine. That's one of the things you should do as an LA County prosecutor, uh, district attorney. You should reach out to various groups within LA County. Um, he failed to reach out to the actual municipalities, cities like mine, and getting us together and talking about what he plans on doing and what his metrics are for success or failure and what he's going to do when those metrics aren't met. So he failed to engage municipalities at a very local level. Um, you know, when we issued the no confidence vote, the city of Pico Rivera of March of last year, uh, two of the city council members met via Zoom with his team. 
And they were very condescending. They were very condescending. They were very, you know, we have the science and data. Uh, you know, it's our way or the highway um, type of approach. They're very condescending. And I heard that from a few other council members that went through this process. Um, and they were just very overconfident. Uh, because they had a large backing of the Democratic establishment, right? They had a lot of high-ranking members within the Democratic Party who were elected officials support them. Um, and you had the George Floyd killing. You had the real prominence of Black Lives Matter and that movement. So George Gascon came up during that time. So I felt that he issued a lot of these directives as a as a down payment on that movement, on what swept them into power. Um, unfortunately, I believe it's going to do harm to justice reform in the long run. Because I want to see justice reform. I want to see ways in which people can rehabilitate themselves and, and come out if they're going to be safe for society. You know, last year I had dinner with a, clo with a friend. Um, he spent 20 years in jail. He stabbed someone. Uh, we grew up together, and he was a good kid. Good kid then, good guy now, unfortunately, uh, f you know, in spite of what he did. He, w he went to a party, he was at a club, and he got into a fight, and he pulled a knife and he stabbed someone, and that person died. He wasn't in a gang. Or he was He's an interesting, interesting story because when I sat down to talk to him, we talked about prison, and we talked about he been in prison for over slightly over 20 years. Um, now he works as a counselor for homeless people, people who are addicted to drugs. But we talked about prison life and we talked about the difficulties in prison, such as the gangs, um, such as not really seeing a good pathway out. And that prison life has evolved. Um, and when he started to see that there was a real path out for him, he stuck to that. He stuck to that for about a good 10 years. Um, and now he's out, and now he's a productive member of society. But there's one thing I want to stress is in Gascon's directives is he no longer allows families um, or the prosecutors to attend parole hearings. And my friend was actually released during the time of Jackie Lacey, right at the end of her tenure. And when he went to his parole hearing, the family of the young man that he had stabbed and killed, they showed up. And the mom and the brother were adamant that he should not be released. But the daughter, who now is in her, in her early 20s, who was a baby at the time that her father was taken from her, um, she wasn't against him being released. But she wanted to tell him the story of what it meant all those years of being without a father. And as my friend tells the story, he was still getting emotional about it. And he said, you know, at that time, he was just crying. And I said, you needed to hear that. You needed to hear that. You need to live with that. You know, I love you, but you need to hear that. And I think, you know, reflecting back on what Gascon's not allowing, by not allowing these families to come out, he's not allowing closure of the process. He's not allowing the ability of these families to have an impact statement on the person that's done quite harm to them by either, you know, by taking their loved one. 
Um, and I think that's part of the healing process that needs to take place. And it's definitely been a big impact on my friend. Um, but depriving people of that, whether it's the criminal that's looking to get out or whether it's a family that's been harmed, by not allowing that process is a big disservice. But it's under the guise of we need to make it easier for people to come out, right? It's under that guise because we don't want undue influence on the parole board. But in reality, there's, a, there's more of a spiritual and emotional um, impact that's not being made because of that. Now, do you think there's people that are coming up with these policies, which they are coming up for communities like yours? They're yeah. saying, okay, we want to we help the minority communities and the people that are getting arrested, more in the minorities. And do you think they are disconnected from the reality and they just are doing their own thing? What are your thoughts? You know, it's, it's a shame. I, 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 think, I think they're disconnected from the street level. I think they're disconnected from, from what's happening on the streets and what everyday residents think. I think they're more caught in a bubble of special interest groups and what's the prevailing narrative at that time, right? Oh, so the prevailing narrative is defund the police. Okay, we're gonna do that. We're gonna chop off the budget of the sheriffs or the LAPD, right? Without realizing what the end product is gonna be. It's like, yeah, good luck defunding the police in the midst of letting more criminals go. How do you think that's gonna turn out? So I think they're caught up in the moment. They're caught up in chasing these narratives that take place. And I don't think they spend time in actual police cars. I did that when I was first elected. I wanna, and I did that before I was elected actually as a community member. Do a ride along. Do a ride along with a sheriff in your community. And I did that, we did that. We talked, we talked about a variety of things. We talked about gangs, we talked about drugs. You know, one of the first calls that we went on was a young man who was, who was, I believe he was 18, 19, and meant severe mental health issues. And the family all day had been trying to protect him from harming himself. Well, he snuck off, he ran off, ran to the kitchen, grabbed a steak knife and stabbed himself in the stomach. And so we responded to the scene and I just thought, you know, this is a shame. This family was trying to do the best that they could. And they didn't want to take him to the hospital because they've had experiences with that. You know, more needs to be done in terms of mental health. Um, we, then went, we, we then went on a, it was late at night. It was like, I think I went on a Friday night. And it was like two in the morning. And there was a small, there was a high speed chase. So we were speeding down uh, you know, one of the major boulevards to catch up to the cops, the police officers who were chasing the criminals. And lo and behold, they were caught stealing a catalytic converter. They were, and that's, that plagues my city and surrounding communities. So a high-speed chase ensues. The guys wreck their vehicle. They, 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 they ditch the car. One of them gets caught. Sure enough, in the back seat, catalytic converters, the, the portable saw. So the gentleman's in the back seat of the police car and I asked the sheriff that I'm with, what happens to him? What happens to him? He's out in the morning. He's, he's out before we finish writing our report. And I just thought, oh, what a waste. 
So I can go back and do that the next time. Yeah, yeah, right? To go back and do it again because each catalytic converter pays 600 to $800, right? You do two or three of those a night, you don't have to work for a week, right? So there's incentive, it incentivizes these criminals to do that because there's no consequences. It demoralizes our police department because here these gentlemen really put their lives on the line to stop this crime. For what? You know, going back, it's a shame because I, I take another step back and I say, w I ask myself, what is this doing? All these policies that are taking place on going soft on crime. It undermines our, the authority of our police. It undermines our trust in our police officers, right? Because we grow up in a society and our parents and our school teachers and our police officers and our society in general instill certain norms into us. It's wrong to steal, right? It's wrong to assault your neighbor. And it's told that if you do these things, you're gonna go to jail because it's wrong, our society doesn't allow it, it's against the law. So when we see these things happen, and when we call the police to show up, and they show up, and no one goes to jail, nothing happens, who do we blame? We don't blame the politicians that tied the police officer's hands, we blame our local police department. And we say, you didn't do anything. They showed up and they didn't do anything. They didn't do anything because there's nothing to be done because the groundwork has shifted underneath them. They know it, but the average resident doesn't because we're not closely in tuned in these things, right? As an average resident, you're not aware of these things because you're not out committing crime. So how do you think we view our police officers? Well, they didn't do anything. They didn't show up. They're good for nothing where their, their, their hands are being tied. And that, would, that, that fears, I have great concern with that because over time, that will only get worse. And their job is very difficult. You're just explaining one night of seeing somebody getting stabbed and then chasing. Well, you know, um, as a city council member, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate they, they offer us life a life insurance policy, right? Yeah. <laughs> As we were going like 80 miles per hour down this street, I'm thinking, you know, I didn't sign that document for that life insurance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, without a doubt, it's, it's a dangerous job. It was one day, right? It was, it, was, it, was, like it was a few hours. It was just a few hours. You know, a day would be over, overstating it, but it was a few hours. And it, it's, it's a dangerous job. It's a dangerous job, and we're thankful that men and women are willing to sign up to do that, to protect us, to put others before themselves. Because I know, I know that they will show up and they will sacrifice themselves for my children if my children were in harm's way. I have no doubt about that, right? So, so it's, it's a job. But, you know, at the same time, at the same time, you know, we need to make sure that, that, that they're regulating themselves too, right? We need to make sure that, th that there are, there's, the majority of them are great cops, police officers, but there will always be a few bad apples. And we need to make sure that, that there's some sort of mechanism that they're internally kept in, in check too. Now, when you mentioned the politicians that make up these policies, a lot of people vote for them because 
their messaging is compassionate to yes. people in your community, <laughs> but it looks like it's the opposite is happening. Yeah, you know, the messaging looks great, right? Right, there's all these consultants on messaging and, and how do we portray this? How do we, how do we decriminalize or how do we lessen felony crimes now into misdemeanors, right? Well, it's just a small drug problem or it's people that really deserve to be helped. Great messaging. Everyone's, a lot of people are, are about that, but the end product just doesn't work. The end product doesn't work unless, unless you know, we want a growing homeless population, right? It's, it's all this talk about diversion groups. It's, it's talk about, okay, well, instead of police officers showing up to mental health crisis calls, we want a mental health crisis team to show up. That's non-threatening, that is going to be a social worker and a paramedic. And I think that's great. I think that's excellent. I think there's some really viable programs throughout the country that are doing that. Before we defund the police and before we talk that we're going to do this, why don't we actually do it? Why don't we set up some pilot programs in my community and have these pilot programs respond to these mental health calls, right? Because just because it works in Oregon or it works in Colorado doesn't mean it's gonna work in Southern, in Southern California. Let's put these pilot programs into place Let's see the response, and then let's incorporate them with the police and fire response so that we work as a team. But it's just politicized. It's just politicized. We're gonna create these community groups that are going to replace police officers, so therefore we're gonna cut your budget, and we, need, we don't need to go down this route of, of having armed police officers. It's like, okay, well, let's start in your neighborhood first. Let's see how that goes because I can tell you how that's gonna go in my community. Um, and unfortunately, it's, it's people coming outside of the city of Pico Rivera to commit crime, right? So if you go lax and if you create these community groups that are gonna enforce crime, you're gonna be a crime magnet. I can guarantee you that. Um, do I think that there needs to be some sort of community task force? Without a doubt. Let's create those pilot programs. Let's see how they work. If they work, then let's incorporate them into a permanent solution. But if they don't work, then we need to go a different route. It seems like despite all of the things we were discussing and all of the things we were seeing in LA, it's still a large group of politicians in LA that believe everything is fine. What do you tell the average Los Angeles residents, people like your community and people across LA that are seeing things are not okay, this, these things are getting worse. And what do you think can get done? Yeah, so, you know, the reason why I was so adamant and so early in the, out of the gate in regards to issuing a no confidence vote for George Gascon for my city, the city of Pico Rivera, is because I knew things were going to get bad. And as a local elected official, residents are gonna come to me. And they're gonna say, what are you doing about crime? You know, what are you doing about graffiti? What are you doing about um, homelessness? And I knew that his directives were only gonna exacerbate crime. So I knew that it was, it, it was important that we get out in front of this and we issue a no confidence. And it's really a message on telling Gascon he was going the wrong way. So when residents come to me, say, what are you doing about crime? I say, well, we issued a no confidence vote against George Gascon because these directives, these misdemeanor crimes that you're complaining about, he's not doing anything about. 
he's no longer prosecuting those crimes. So they're gonna, they're, they're gonna persist. And I'll tell you what, when we did that early March of, of last year, I had residents coming up to me, thanking me. And they knew who the LA County DA was. And I thought to myself, that's a tell, right? That's a tell in the sense that- Usually you wouldn't know who's the DA. Exactly. You don't even know exa that position exactly, exists. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so when average residents were coming up to me saying that Gascon guy is a bad character, I knew he was in trouble. I knew he was in trouble. And that should have been assigned to him, right? But he's someone who's doubled down. He's someone who is now, is now seeing that the leaves have changed. So his messaging, I believe, you asked this a little bit earlier, his messaging is, in my opinion, starting to change. Like, in fact, yesterday he tried to take credit for the 100-year sentence given to Avanti, the, the, the murderer of, of, of that uh, woman, uh, I believe African-American woman, Avanti, uh, to, her, to her murderer. He was given, I believe, 109 years. Gascon tried to take credit for that. But when you peel back what his directives are, that gentleman has the ability to get out within 20 years because Gascon has created so that people, once they hit 50, are eligible for parole as long as they've done 20 years, if I'm not mistaken. So on the surface, it sounds good. He's trying to take credit for something, but in reality, his directives undermine exactly what he's done or what he's trying to take credit for. Now, what do you think your community and people like that, the residents of your community should do to avoid this type of things in the future? You know, that, that's very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate in the sense that positions such as the Los Angeles County District Attorney Office has become politicized, right? It's become politicized and it's become weaponized for these, you know, prevailing narratives at the time, right? When, he, when George Gascon was elected, like I mentioned, the Black Lives Matter, George Floyd killing, this idea of intense um, social, uh, criminal justice reform was, was, was front and center. Um, and when you talk to a lot of these criminal justice reform advocates, there is this prevailing um, narrative that comes from them. You need to turn the system upside down. Because for decades, if not hundreds of years, it has been marginalized or it has marginalized minority communities, it's minor, marginalized Latino communities, African-American communities. So in order to change the system, you have to turn it upside down. And I just think that that's the wrong approach. You're, you know, um, there are things that you do to communities that you can shock them. And, and I think what they fail to, to, to keep in mind is that these are elected positions. People may not know your name right now, or they may not know that your position exists, but if you unleash these directives on them and crime becomes worse and you become the focal point, they will learn your name and they will come out in thousands to sign recall petitions against you. Um, so what do I tell my community members in, in regards to this? You know, we, we need to pay more attention. We need to demand certain things of our politicians, whether it's our local elected officials. Uh, people need to demand that I'm transparent, that I'm accountable to them. Um, and not just you know, a three minute public comment, but let's sit down for coffee. Let's sit down, let's talk. What, what are the problems? You know, 
And these are the roadblocks I'm having in addressing your problems. Um, it's having that meaningful dialogue um, instead of huddling in our, in our political camps or our, our, our political camps and just you know, trading shots, trading verbal shots. We need to become more involved. We need to hold our elected officials more accountable in, in the services that they're providing us. Now, do you have any other thoughts for our audience? I look forward to a safer California. I look forward to a safer Pico Rivera and neighboring communities. Um, I have two small children. You know, I'm, I'm a critical care nurse. Um, I'm indigenous to the state of California. I'm California Native American. And I, I wish we can put aside our political differences, our political rhetoric, and talk about safe communities while keeping in mind that there are those within our society that need help, whether it's mental health, drug addiction, and we need to create meaningful pathways so that people reach, achieve homeostasis, they achieve some sort of normal in their lives so that they're productive uh, community members. Andrew Lara, City Councilman of Pico Rivera, thank you for coming on California. Thank you, it's been a privilege, thank you.